Right in the 103rd Street Rhythm Band with Express Yourself. 1970, I was growing up in New York City and we played all the street games. Stickball, handball, touch football, but basketball had a special place in our hearts because 1970 was the Knicks and they beat the Lakers in the finals and a year later, we were going to have Dr. J come to Long Island to play with the Nets. It was just it was a fabulous sport. And, of course, when I moved to Seattle, I became a Sonics fan, too. And there was a lot of excitement and a lot of fun. And then bad stuff happened. The owner of the Sonics, Howard Schultz, sold them to some Oklahoma, you know, millionaires, billionaire types. And they made a pretense of keeping the team here. This is my opinion. But... They moved it, and there was a lot of angst and unhappiness. So now I'm going to flash forward just a little bit to 2009. I'm running for mayor, and I'm in a coffee shop with these guys asking me, if you win, are you going to bring back the Sonic? And that's a hell of a hard question because the NBA is powerful, and they were very, very hard on Seattle. Not only that, the NBA really wants a lot of money out of cities. So I made no commitment then. But we did, in fact, work on it. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about this in the show. But the main point of the show here is I met the Sonics fans. And I got to know them. And I, I was a little bit of a fan. But these guys are so intense and so into it. And I've got two of the most intense guys that have been the Sonics fans. Jason Reed and Adams Brown, who collectively go by Sonicsgate. And, you know, the theme of express yourself fits here, too. Because... They were working on stuff, but something about the Sonics really motivated them. And they made a movie, a documentary called Sonicsgate. And that, that's where I'm just going to launch. So first of all, welcome to the show, you guys. Hey, thanks and for having us on. Thank you, Mike. What is the Sonicsgate movie? Just in a nutshell, what's the movie? I mean, Sonicsgate is a documentary that exposes all the lies and corruption that went into how we lost the Sonics. And basically, we wanted to expose the truth as to what happened and put all the information in one place and make it readily accessible for anybody to see how screwed over our city and Sonic fans got back when uh, Schultz sold the team to Bennett and Bennett ultimately moved the team. So that's the long story short, but it, you know, we always like to say it's not just a movie, it's a movement. It started as a documentary and turned into a movement to expose the lies that happened here and to ultimately provide a place for Sonic fans to come together to try to bring a team back to Seattle. And, how, yeah, how well is it done? It's gone beyond all of our expectations. I mean, we really made it in 2009 as a sort of cathartic release for ourselves. We were just... So angry at all the people who let the Sonics fans down, all the backroom deals and lies from politicians and business owners and people who sort of shifted the blame off themselves. And we had to hold these people accountable and put it all in one place. And once we did that, we thought maybe this that would be it. And then it just snowballed and we won the Webby Award and uh, got picked up by CNBC. And now it's airing on ESPN Classic and it's got... You know, our, our YouTube channel has 2 million views, and it's really become something that has a life of its own in a way that I think uh, really speaks to the power of documentary filmmaking for activism. Well, you know, and that's, that's kind of one of the things I want to get at. One of the themes of this show, You, Me, Us Now, is that, you know, regular people get excited about something, they get engaged, and things happen. 
And, you know, for me, I was like passionate about sidewalks in my neighborhood and passionate about protecting the planet. And one thing led to another and I became mayor, literally one thing led to another. And that happened to the two of you as well. I mean, Jason, I know you were in movie making. It was your career. But tell me tell me how you ended up making this flick and then then I'll get you in on this. Yeah, I've been I've been working doing film video production for about five years and um I the Seattle Weekly were like, hey do you want to make some little Sonics videos, you know, to help document what's going on. This was before the team left. And so I'd show up to rallies and put together fun little internet videos and then uh, all of a sudden, the federal court case was happening. I went every day. I filmed the what rally. What was the federal court case? Uh, well, the city of Seattle sued the Seattle Supersonics, owned by Clay Bennett, to hold them to their lease at Key Arena. Uh, unfortunately, mayor, the former Mayor Nichols uh, decided to take a settlement agreement, even though publicly saying for months that he was going to do everything he could to keep the team there. Well, if he was really going to do everything he could, he would have held them accountable to their lease and let the verdict be read. Instead, he settled at last minute, and the team left and a disgraceful fashion. And so watching all this stuff, you know, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm sitting there going to press conferences. I'm when stuff's on TV, I'm recording it just in case the team leaves. We can hold all the people that were lying to us accountable from Clay Bennett to David Stern to Nichols to Gregoire to Frank Chop, all these guys. We recorded their actions in real time. And then when the team left, obviously it was just completely devastating. I went and made a film in China where I bicycled from Beijing to Shanghai. I, I watched that film. You liked it, yeah? I did. I liked Manzo. I liked it a lot. Yeah, worth watching. Manzo, Beijing to Shanghai should be a digital release in 2016. <laughs> um, little plug there. But anyway, after we finished the cut of that movie, I kind of committed to Colin Baxter, executive producer, and my kind of cohort to up until that point, we're going to make a movie called Sonicsgate. Adam uh, kind of came on board then. He was with Save Our Sonics, and uh, you want to take it from here, Adam, on yeah, this part what, of the story? Yeah, what were you doing well, before yeah. you got into a movie? Because you're now a movie producer, right? Yeah, full-time since 2009, since uh, sort of linking up with Jason and producing Sonic State was the first thing I ever produced as far as a film. Well, well take, take um, me through. What were you doing? I mean, did you, did you study this in college? Had you ever been engaged in film before? My background was in journalism. I studied communication and and print journalism in college so I was going to be a writer I thought and then right when I graduated school the collapse of all the old traditional media was underway so all the newspaper jobs were going away all the sort of traditional print journalism jobs were no longer there so I was working uh, some marketing jobs for software companies on the east side you know with some good people but not very fulfilling work uh, creatively got laid off uh, during the crash of 2008, which is right around when the Sonics left. Uh, and I was also volunteering for Save Our Sonics, you know, organizing press releases, events like the courthouse rally. And that was when I first met Jason. I was like, thought, oh, oh, who's this crazy guy with the long hair who's running around with this camera? And so one of these events after the Sonics left was uh, an event at Numo's that was trying to raise awareness and uh, Passed Senate Bill 6116, which is kind of a blast from the past that would have held Clay Bennett accountable for the extra $30 million in the contract that he ended up getting off scot-free from paying. Anyway, I asked Jason to film that event, and then while I was unemployed and we were going through the footage from that event, I sort of just clicked like, this is really fun. This is a way to use these journalism skills in a whole new way, and this independent documentary filmmaking uh, and, and before we knew what we were doing, we were making calls, booking interviews, and producing Sonic Skate. So it sort of just happened super organically. It was one of those things where 
the universe just sort of put it in front of me and was like, hey, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And so we've been uh, partnering and uh, making films ever since. Now, your work didn't stop with Sonic Skate on the Sonics. I mean, there's a lot of other film projects I want to get right. to, but you have been very consistently engaged with the Sonics Arena dispute. And I'll, I'll catch up our listeners. I, I hope I have some listeners who are not deeply familiar with the Sonic saga. So I'll, I'll see if I can, I can add stuff in. As mayor, I was approached by a potential investor, a guy by the name of Chris Hansen, and we spoke about under what circumstances the city could support an arena. And the circumstances were that we, we couldn't raise taxes for it. We couldn't cut other things. It would have to be self-supporting, and there would have to be a return on any investment we put in. And Chris actually agreed to that, and we ended up with a deal between Chris Hansen, the city, and the county in which we came up with a, the MOU, a proposal to build a new arena, because there was a chicken and egg problem with the NBA. The NBA wasn't going to give us a team unless there was an arena, and we weren't going to build an arena unless there was a team. So the attempted solution to that was to um, have a shovel-ready arena with all of the permits in place, which brings us up to the present day where the arena is now seeking to vacate a, a lightly used city street as part of their arena plan. We're now heading to a final vote, but the, uh, the, the MOU was approved at both the city and county level. And you guys are still in the thick of the fight. You've been sticking with it ever since making Sonic Skate. Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been kind of a, a full-time job, or at least a part-time job, for, since, really since the Sonics left. And, you know, that's for anything from showing up at Howard Schultz events to, uh, you know, uh, going out to film the one-block stretch of Occidental. And we went out there a few weeks ago, shot a time-lapse on what should have been one of the busiest days in the history of the port, uh, we were up there all day, and we filmed one freight truck that didn't even use the one-block stretch of Occidental and two trucks that were using buildings owned by Chris Hansen. No other freight mobility. Um, and so, yeah, we're out there, like, speaking out on this cause. You know, your first day in office, you allowed people to come visit you, and we were in the first group, Adam and I and the rest of the Songscape team. I am you know, now we, remembering we, that. You were in the first group. We came That's in and when you me. handed me the copy of Manzo, yep. and, and I went home and watched it. Right, right. Okay, so which really brings me to the question, why are you guys so crazy about the Sonics? I mean, we really do need to dig into this because, and I'm not trying to, I know that that had a certain feel to it, that question, but it. It was something that was really eye-opening to me as a mayor. Because, you know, you run for mayor. There's all sorts of things you want to do. And there are all sorts of things you have to do. And then there's all sorts of people you had no idea of the strength of their feelings about certain topics. And you have to respond to that. So why Sonics? Why, why do you guys care? And why should the city care? Well, the, Seattle has always been a basketball city. And, you know, we, we recently have enjoyed this amazing Seahawks success and been Seahawks crazy. But if you go back to our childhood and the previous generations of Seattle, the Supersonics were synonymous with Seattle. I mean, this, this was our main export in terms of national and international branding was Seattle, the Supersonics. I mean, it was our city's first major league championship in 79. And, you know, just the way the rhythms of this city and the way that, you know, we have beautiful summers, but it's a little gray and cloudy during, you know, November to April, right? Syncing up with basketball season. And it's an amazing chance for everyone to look forward to something, you know, a game on Tuesday night against the Golden State Warriors or, you know, th this community gathering. I, you know, I'm not sure what it is that 
makes it such a basketball city, but there's no denying it when you look at the way people have been homegrown here who are in the league. Jamal Crawford, Spencer Hawes, going back to Doug Christie, Jason Terry. I mean, it's in our blood here, basketball. I think we have as many or more NBA players out of the city, you know, per capita than any city in the country. Well, and those guys are about our our age, growing up watching the Nike Sonics teams with Peyton and Kemp and Shrimp and all these guys that we, like, grew up watching. And so the generation before us had the 79 team. Our generation had the 90s team. This was bred generation after generation into our consciousness. I mean, if you would have asked me before the Sonics left back in even 2005, 2006, like, what's the one thing you wouldn't want to lose from Seattle outside of, like, the mountains and the ocean? It'd be the Seattle Supersonics, you know? I mean, I can't, I couldn't even possibly fathom the idea that they would not exist anymore in 2005 when our hero Howard Schultz had bought the team and you know the local business guy who was gonna you know the the team of local investors. You never would have imagined that they would have like sold the team to a bunch of Oklahoma businessmen. And it, I, yeah, anyway, so why we care too is how horribly we got ripped off as fans and as a city in that deal, like. That makes you care more because of how wronged we were. And in case anyone's wondering, our Starbucks boycott is in full effect. Uh, Jason and I have not set foot in a Starbucks since Schultz sold the team in 2006. So we encourage everyone to continue and follow that lead. It, ma- it makes for a lot of uncomfortable conversations with clients who say, hey, can you just meet us at Starbucks? And we're like, well, actually, can we go to Ladro? Like, you know, we, we really can't meet you there. Well, the passion is definitely out there. And that was one of the things I noticed. And, but what was interesting, too, is where the passion comes from, right? And I really picked up on it when I was talking to, to, to kids, you know, the younger generation. Hey, I went out one day to uh, meet with the Green Corps. These are young kids who've been in trouble with the law, who were then hired by parks to work on our parks. And they just told me about their program. They told me about planning stuff, you know. And then it was my time for Q&A. Hey, do you guys have questions for me? And first question, are you going to get back to Sonics? And this was repeated over and over again. But I really picked up on that. And because I, I think it played a role in the loss of the Sonics, you know, who's for them. And I think it played a role in, in trying to bring them back as well and watching the current debate. Because this city is by no means united on the idea of bringing back the Sonics. So... Your thoughts on kind of the politics and demographics of Sonic yeah. support? Well, it's such a layered question when you, you do this, and that's part of why we made the documentaries, because we got sick of being in a bar and somebody saying, oh, why did the Sonics leave? And we had these three-hour conversations peeling back layers of the onion, you know, all the political and demographic reasons and the timing and sort of this perfect storm. So uh, we wanted to put all the info in one place. And what when you're talking about this, you know, you're talking about sports fans who are becoming educated on a lot of things about the political process. You know, we're talking about leases. We're talking about street vacations. You know, we're talking about um, the ways that city and state and county money is managed. So, uh, you know, it, this whole process has sort of turned a lot of sports fans into political experts. And, to, you know, to come back to the original question, I think uh, demographically it's it's a very interesting thing in Seattle because – Seattle's known as sort of a very, you know, a white city overall, but there is a lot of historic black culture in Seattle. And, you know, we're, when we're coming back to, I don't want to pile on Nick Licata too hard because he did apologize for his statement, but when he said the Sonics have no cultural value to Seattle, that kind of says it all when it comes to the demographics what, what did that of say? basketball. What did that say when he said that? 
it just showed a sort of cultural elitism that is present in Seattle. And, you know, Seattle doesn't have the sort of overt racism that you see in the deep south, but it's it's a more closeted racism. It's a more under the surface sort of not in my backyard kind of thing. And it's and it's, you know, the same people who say basketball has no cultural value will also have no problem spending millions of dollars of public money on a new opera house or things that they view as having cultural value. So this is a battle that we've been fighting ever since Lakata made that comment. You know, basketball does have cultural value, not just for the people who are rich enough to sit courtside, but for all the people in the community who benefit from having a team, having role models, having people uh, building you know, new community centers. I mean, we live in the South End. I've, I live a block away from Van Asselt Community Center, which was built by, you know, Seattle Supersonics uh, Community Care Initiatives. And it's got a big Sonics logo in the middle. And then you've got a block down. You've got Othello Park with a giant mur- mural of Gary Payton on it. And, you know, th- this, is, these, this is cultural value. And uh, it's measured in ways outside of the direct business, you know, nuts and bolts of money. Uh, and I think that's something that we've been fighting, you know, and, and we've also been fighting this battle of sort of this subtle racism. People say, well, I don't like the NBA because it's just a bunch of overpaid thugs. Have and, you actually had people say oh, that to you? Uh, all, all the time. The time. And if you listen to sports radio enough, you hear you hear people calling in like, oh, these tattooed thugs. You know, you definitely heard it during the Allen Iverson era. You didn't yeah. hear it so much during the Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and those eras. Right. But once... Allen Iverson and gangster rap and all that stuff got kind of looped together, I feel like. Yeah, right? so that's a battle we've been fighting. To, to People don't even realize that they're being racist when they say that and that they're they're being sort of, you know, culturally, this cultural elitism that is the racism that we face in Seattle. So it's been an ongoing debate, and, and we really try to make people realize that uh, there is cultural value to this, and it's not just something that's, you know, a rich person's play toy. It really does have uh, community benefits that re- reverberate all throughout all and, economic classes yeah. and different. It's a it's a cross section of our community, and basketball really is that sport more than any other. Yeah, I think that uh, you know, like uh, just going to the game is one thing, but having that team in the community and having those conversations around the water cooler or at work or whatever. It's like I didn't go to that many games. I didn't couldn't afford that many games. Every single game, we were getting together our group of friends and watching that. And that's community building right there. You know, so, yeah, it is about the arena. It is about that experience. But it's also about so much more. It touches so many more people uh, in the community than just the people that are in that arena. It brings the community together. We saw it with the Seahawks. We see it with the Sounders and stuff even. I mean, it's it's true. It's tangible. So uh, last week, I went down to a press conference uh, in support of Bernie Sanders. You guys will appreciate this. It was held at ILWU, the International Longshore Workers Union. And it's the arena is going to be situated immediately adjacent to our port. In fact, our stadium district was previously industrial land. So it opens up another culture war in Seattle because I was in the union hall where the workers gather to get sent to their jobs, right? And that's culture, too. In fact, they were talking a lot about that. Seattle also has an impression of itself as, you know, an industrial town, a working town, a port town. To me, so much of this debate gets in the in this cultural space rather than the actual details of the deal. I don't think that they're mutually exclusive things. I think that we can have a working, functioning, successful port and have an arena that adds an extra 18 
thousand seats when we have two fifty thousand plus stadiums right there i mean the facts of the matter are there was a multi-year environmental review there was s dot studies chris hansen paid for a 40 million dollar traffic study like all of these analysis come back with closing that stretch of occidental and putting the arena there will not cause negative uh, impact on freight mobility it seems like the port is using this and saying, oh, Sonic fans are against working class jobs and against families. Well, you know what? There's going to be a lot of builders that are going to be working on this arena. There's going to be a lot of service, uh, SEIU service workers working in this er arena. This is good for working class jobs. This is good for families. And it's not going to take away your jobs closing a one block alley of Occidental. It just isn't. That's that's what the facts say. Until they come with stats and prove otherwise, then they're just, you know, they're just looking for a handout, you know, that, and that's what the port has been doing for years. They want their Lander Street overpass. They want multi-hundred millions of dollars, too. If It's just like uh, when Schultz and Stern were asking the legislature, oh, the Mariners and the Seahawks got a handout. Can't we have one? Oh, well, you guys get a handout to to this this billionaire. Well, why can't we have a $200 million Lander overpass? And that's really what they're doing. They're, they're using that as a smoke and mirrors front that it's attacking working class jobs, and it's not at all. And let's not pull any punches here. I mean, it's been an unethical disinformation campaign that has been peddling lies to the citizens of Seattle and the city council. Uh, you know, they've been the poor has other problems. This one block stretch of Occidental is not the port's problem. The port is facing struggles from automation and that's hurting their jobs. Their uh, competition from the port of Tacoma. Uh, you know, there there are other issues that are affecting the port, and, and we do need to address those issues. But closing a one-block, rundown, pothole-filled alley on Occidental is not going to cost a single port job. They need to look in the mirror and stop peddling these lies. You know, what we're really trying to do here is use a billionaire's private dollars for much-needed public infrastructure within the stadium district. This is the stadium district. It's the nexus of tr transportation in the region. It's the best place to put it, as that's why they made it the stadium district. And this is not a handout. If you look at the old deals, you know, Howard Schultz wanted $200 million of public money. You look at Safeco and, and uh, CenturyLink Field. Those were public handouts from the hotel motel tax, where that money could have been used elsewhere. What Hansen is doing is he's got a solution. It's a revolutionary solution to the sports industrial complex of the past. All of the money, uh, public bonding capacity, is self-contained within the arena, so only the people who use the arena are paying for it. This is the greatest arena deal ever, and yet we're hearing from the port, why are you handing out to billionaires and all these other sort of false, uh, you know, false notions from past deals that they're trying to use as scare tactics against this deal. Well, I learned that politics is a rough and tumble sport, and people use the arguments that work, not necessarily the arguments that are correct. I I had an awesome time as mayor doing many different things, but it was my first exposure to sports radio was when we put the Sonics deal on. I had no idea what to expect when I went down. And I should have known, right, these guys, and it's guys, spend all day long talking about stats and figures. And in a 10-minute piece, we would dive so deep into the details, just like you you were doing as well. I remember walking out of one of those where, where they had just set up argument after argument, and we had debated it with facts and details. I remember walking out saying to my buddy uh, Pickus, Aaron Pickus, who was my communications guy, I'd like to have these guys working on all the issues. 
because it moved it out of the back rooms into the public eye where it was really debated at length and you had thousands of people just deeply involved. So do not underestimate the detail orientation of sports fans, and which kind of brings me to another topic. I thought this issue was really significant for politicians, you know, that sports fans matters. Your thoughts in watching this? Yeah, I mean, I think we've proved it right off the bat with Mayor Nichols getting ousted even before the general election back uh, a month after he let the Sonics go. I mean, a lot of people will blame that on the snow thing and, you know, snow plows and stuff, but really... He lost by a few thousand votes, and there are definitely more than a few thousand Sonic fans out there that were pissed and ready to fire the guy that took the settlement deal and an ugly backroom deal that allowed the team to go for $45 million. I mean, he deserved to get fired after that, and he did. Fast forward three years, Richard Conlon, our former city council president, came out against the arena when the MOU was up when you, you were working with Hanson on that. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, we went out, went hard against him in the reelection against Sawant, and he ultimately got ousted by a very, very small margin. And, uh, you know, I'd like to think that Sonic fans played a big role in that. I mean, Sawant's an amazing, uh, you know, candidate and doing some some pretty uh, wild things on the city council, which we totally appreciate and support. And we're Bernie supporters and everything, too. But. We Sonic fans had a big impact on that election. Well, I think in the past, it was sort of an overlooked constituency, and politicians sort of, they're always afraid. I mean, you know this better than anyone, uh, Mayor McGinn, that it's easier to say no because then you don't have to take a real stance. Um, and that saying yes opens you up to more criticism for things. So sports fans had always been sort of an ignored constituency, and, uh, you know, over the last eight years or so, we've really gotten more organized and have been a real constituency. And you see it in the ways that people have come out to the public hearings and the ways that, uh, you know, real policy, I, I mean, they have to answer to us now as a constituency. And, you know, Jason and I are not single issue guys. I think that's an important yeah, thing. Yeah, and we're going to um, turn to that because I think this is something that's that was interesting to me, too, because we're talking about sports fans as if like there's a pie chart of the electorate and you just you just cut a slice out and you call them sports fans. And I think that was one of the things that was really interesting to me too was I mentioned uh, you know young kids uh, from the southeast and communities of color, young kids all over the city. But the way it also intersected with um, the nightlife community, uh, but then there were all sorts of other people who come out of the woodwork too. It's like one of the issues that people care about but it seems to fit in with a lot of other urban issues that we see around um, having a vibrant, diverse place, having transit, you know, having walkability. All of these things do. I'm not I don't want to attribute all of these views to every Sonics fans, but there seemed to be a very strong overlap. And, you know, that's a really important thing to both Jason and I is making Seattle what we call a grown up city, you know, and we want to maintain Seattle's unique charm and the neighborhoods and all the things, you know, the the outdoor spaces and the the things that make Seattle unique. But we need to improve our transportation infrastructure. Every time we go to New York or a big city like that that has a you know great subway system, we're just like, we need this in Seattle. Why, why do we not have this type of infrastructure that allows us to become a big kid city? And uh, we, we need all these things, certain things like extending bar hours, removing uh, you know impedances on people starting businesses, we need to work together and make this a city where people can take it to the next level. 
And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people who sort of harken back, oh, I wish it was like the good old days. Those good old days are gone, you know, and, and they weren't so good, and that's why they're gone. You know, we need to look to the future. And, you know, we consider ourselves progressives. I mean, we're also independents, not bound to any single party or, you know, in lockstep with any particular political campaign. But, you know, a big important thing for us is improving the infrastructure of Seattle to allow us to do our film production business here and continuing to, you know, make it a city where people want to innovate. And and that's always been something that has been a Seattle, uh, you know, something we're known for is innovation. Yeah, and I think that like the people that came around this were in influential Seattle leaders, whether it's in the nightlife community, in music, in business or whatever. I mean, it's it's a great constituency because everyone's so different. We always laugh when we show up at these songs rallies, and it's like family, but it's like family. You got your weird uncle, you got your <laughs> your annoying brothers and sisters. You, but but we're all like, and we all have come. You know, it's not like we're all right wingers or left wingers. You know, everybody is coming from different political backgrounds, different. It's a very diverse group of people, as you know, yeah. from everybody who's come to you. And I love that all these people have come together. And, you know, when we started Sonicscape, people were pissed. People would, well, when the Sonics left, people put all their gear, Sonics gear away. And it was kind of like everyone was disgraced by how it went down. And I think over the years, like as people have realized that other people are just as pissed and, people really want the songs back it's very missed in our community all of a sudden this new community is formed or maybe it's just that old community coming back together you know rooting against the thunder and rooting on our local politicians who are willing to go out on a limb and support this and 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 not worry about the ports threats and whatnot and so i think just people are motivated and i and i love the group of people that has formed this new constituency constituency. And it's really been a microcosm for all these other issues and the and opened up all of our eyes to how the political game works on a local level. I mean, you're talking about, you know, special interests influencing candidates and people flip-flopping to other sides. I mean, I don't want to put too many people on blast here, but Mike O'Brien was strongly in favor of the arena deal in 2012 and now he's sort of on the fence and you know he has to be held accountable if he changes his vote to a no and you know I don't know who who may have gotten to him within the port but uh, you know we're, we're gonna be sort of the watchdogs on this and it's opened up you know we're talking about uh, lease agreements and specific performance and street vacations and uh, you know who would have known that the Seattle Times editorial board was such a corrupt entity well, with the, with their editorials against the arena you know, speaking of this disinformation campaign, editorial after editorial after editorial against the arena, referring to Chris Hansen as a hedge fund manager, when really he's a generous Seattle son who's giving back to the city that raised him. So, you know, it's opened our eyes to the ways that politics work on this issue, but also all these other issues that we care about, the environment, you know, the First Amendment, uh, urbanism, transportation, you know, community, you know, community services. I mean, it really has made the sports fans into sort of these, you know, political legal well, experts. The Seattle Times is supposed to be the watchdog. They're our one newspaper. They're supposed to be an independent journalistic organization. They're out there for years writing hit pieces because Frank Bletherin's friends with the port or whatever it is. 
and it's it's totally is disinformation. You never see an op-ed in favor of the arena. They did the same thing with you. Oh, Mayor McGinn, like making bike lanes. Let's oust him, you know. And they and they rail and they rail and they rail, and they are not doing the job they should be as a paper. I mean, I, I boycott the Seattle Times the same way I boycott Starbucks. And I think what you're seeing here is a move. We're in the information age here, Mike, and I uh-huh. think what you're seeing here is. It's power to the people. It's the grassroots getting the information, learning how to organize using social media and taking the power back in a way. And you were sort of criticized in the same way that Shama Sawant is criticized for not being establishment, not playing the game. And I think, you know, ultimately, that's what we want. We want politicians in office who are not going to be bound to special interests, who are going to look at the facts and do what's best for the city and act on the will of the people. So we really appreciate the work that you've done there. Okay, well, we, we'll, we're we going to take a clip of that. We'll save that if I ever run for office again. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll roll that one out. Thanks, guys. <laughs> no, politics, I said already, it is a contact sport, and, and it's pretty tough. And and you've gotten involved in other things. For example, you made a movie about the legalization of marijuana. You've, you guys have managed somehow to make a living while also combining that with your advocacy. You have a documentary coming up on Dukakis. Tell me about some of your other projects. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a constant hustle being a filmmaker in Seattle. You know, it's very independent, which fits our sort of uh, personality as well. Uh, yeah, immediately uh, back right after um, marijuana was legalized here, I had a friend who'd been making a documentary, Riley Morton, uh, and Nils Cowan for the last year and a half covering the process. I called him up after it passed and said, hey, what are you guys doing for post-production? We'd love to like partner with you guys and help get the film released. We're passionate about this issue. We want to get all the information about out about what I-502 was, both the positives and negatives. They had the coverage, and uh, our whole team, the Sonicsgate team, partnered with uh, these guys who've been making the film, and we, re- we released Evergreen, The Road to Legalization. It's available on Netflix. You can watch it. It's a it's a blow by blow um, from initiative signature gathering all the way through the election. And I think it's a really important movie to see to see the democratic process in action, our initiative process, and seeing uh, what is going to be a battle that repeats itself over and over across the country, particularly this year in 2016 with California and up to maybe eight other states voting on legalizing rec- recreational marijuana. We're going to see some of the same battles that we saw here in Washington State. Uh, play out nationally over the next few years. You, we were talking the other day, and and because of this experience you've had with Sonicsgate, and you became kind of an accidental film producer, uh, Adam. You'd never yeah. done it before, but next thing you know, you were doing it. You guys now bring kind of a film and production and distribution, and you partner with people. That's kind of is that your niche now? Yeah, well, one we, of the niches for sure. Yeah. yeah, we we really love editing and assembling the story through post production. And our editor Darren Lund, who's not here, is but is a huge part of all these projects. Independent documentary is sort of the new journalism in a way, and you have to be careful because it's also extremely biased if you let it to be. So we try to hold ourselves to a standard of, you know, sort of the old world journalism standards, but with new technology and media. And uh, so, yeah, it's become, you know, it's become a way that you can tell a story that's extremely powerful. So, you know, we just finished uh, another new project filming about Michael Dukakis and the 1988 presidential election that's going to be airing on 538 Films, uh, the Nate Silver uh, data analytics website. And, uh, you know, we really love telling these stories and, you know, interviewing people, getting the perspectives and assembling the story in post-production. And, and we've, it, with Evergreen and another documentary, K2, Siren of the Himalayas, 
these were projects where other people had put years and years into them and then had all this footage and didn't quite know how to assemble the story. And then they brought our team on to kind of, you know, do the edit and bring it to the finish line with all the post-production. Yeah, and we've done this a lot of times now. And, you know, one one sense, the Dukakis thing is totally from scratch, ours. You know, I'm right. directing it, Adam's producing it, it's our team's concept. Things like K2 and Evergreen were just tremendous opportunities. My buddy Dave Olson went to K2 and filmed all this stuff, and he was starting medical school, didn't really have time to edit it, and we, he brought in our team, and we put together this award-winning doc, which is also available on Netflix. It's really fun to collaborate with people who've put in a ton of time on these projects and, and help them get their vision out and, and also just become an expert on a new topic. I mean, every single one of these projects we get involved in we're just learning such a tremendous amount of, you know, sometimes it's intricacies of, you know, the I-502 and how politics are done. Sometimes it's like learning about China, learning about, you know, the whole arena subsidies and stadiums. And, you know, it's really dynamic and interesting work that we love. And we have, you know, a bunch of new projects upcoming, too. And we're just kind of keeping it rolling, keeping it diverse. We didn't want to get categorized as just the sports guys, even though we've done a lot of sports-related right. content. Anyone who's seen Sonic Skater, if you see it, you'll realize it's as much a movie about politics and business as it is about sports. And all of our movies are sort of diverse and different. We definitely would like to continue to keep doing political films and activist films because it Songskate was just, I think Adam said earlier, it, was, it, it sort of showed us the power of documentary film and what you could do if you were – uh, making a film about your cause or about an issue that you want explored more and the power that, that film can have. You know, I watched K2 on Netflix or something without realizing it was you guys, and I got to the end, and I was like, wow, these guys are getting better and better. That's what I thought. You have another one coming up, Nacho Picasso. Who is Nacho Picasso, and what are you doing? So Nacho Picasso is a Seattle rapper, and uh, we have a new project with him called The Nacho Menery. And anyone who knows Nacho or his music knows that he's one of the people in the world who should have a camera on him at all times. <laughs> he's completely unfiltered. If you follow him on Twitter, at Nacho Picasso, I mean, it's one of the absolute must-follow Twitter accounts, uh, assuming you're uh, not easily offended by bad, for work. Yeah, bad language <laughs> and such. But, uh, you know, we were just fans of his music, and then we um, met his manager, John Moore, who's uh, you know been very influential in the Seattle hip hop community, and we were gonna do a music video, and just after the first couple meetings with Nacho, we were like, you know what, we're the documentary guys, let's make a documentary instead of a music video, and so that's gonna be premiering on April 20th at Numos. That'll be the first chance that you have to see it, the Nacho Menery, and uh, Harry Fraud is coming out from New York to perform with Nacho, so it's gonna be a big deal. Uh, tickets are online at Numos for the Nacho Menery on 420. You know, I periodically get um, mentioned in Nacho Picasso's tweets. I'm never really quite sure how to, you know, what's the former mayor Nacho Picasso Twitter space that I can enter? I haven't figured that out yet. Yeah, so. that's, that's probably a tough one. But yeah, it's been a really fun project. You know, this is just the first two episodes of what we hope will become an episodic series. You know, uh, the guy has endless material. And uh, Okay, looking, looking forward to it. Okay, so we have managed to get through an entire podcast without talking about me playing basketball in the Jamal Crawford program twice. I don't know how we did this. And really, I was thinking about everything I was going to say and how I was going to present it, but it's probably for the best that we haven't spoken about. By the way, I got to put in a plug. We were talking about community and, and how the NBA is plays a role in that. 
Jamal helped us in the mayor's office with our attendance campaign. He does um, a back-to-school day, which just attracts everybody. They're getting backpacks. The kids are getting haircuts. There's music playing. You know, they're getting notebooks. Um, he does a Thanksgiving turkey handout with the Rainier Beach High School teams. I got to meet, you know, the Sonics or the former Seattle players like uh, Jamal, who went to Rainier Beach. And they're, they're really a great bunch, too. So I, I that was one of... Uh, Actually, one of my career highlights was, in fact, playing in the Pro-Am with Jamal Crawford. But yeah, more we, than that, getting to know him. We saw we saw you do that, and uh, we can vouch for everybody that you've still got some game, Mike. <laughs> I saw you had a little crossover, and you had a little a little dish, a little no-look pass. I'm gonna send you. I'm gonna send you a little clip from me at Van Asselt playing uh, playing basketball with the uh, street outreach guys from the Seattle Youth Violence Prevention Initiative. We've done a big press conference. And these guys were, were, you know, they were talking to me. And I said, okay, get a basketball, let's go. And we went out went out into the Van Asselt play field and played. So, um, yeah, I had, a great, I had a great time. I had a great time being mayor. And, and I used, that was a little bit of inside influence I used to get into that Pro-Am game. Um, it's not really open to players like me, usually. So I started the show with my song selection, you get to pick a song, so you guys got to tell me what it is and why you picked it. So uh, back earlier this summer, uh, we got approached by Matador Records in New York. They're a large independent label. We've done some work with them over the years, shooting a video for Perfume Genius and some other stuff. Well, they said they had this new band that uh, is coming out of Seattle that we may or may not have heard of. I'd heard a little bit of the buzz about them, but they're called Car Seat Headrest. They're founded by a guy named Will Toledo. And uh, we filmed their first sort of official music video. They got signed to Matador Records. They've gotten an incredible amount of press and hype. Uh, the video is uh, online. It's for a song called Something Soon. It's kind of angsty, uh, indie indie rock. Uh, Adam, you want to hop yeah, in if, here? Yeah, if, uh, if you like to you know stretch it a little bit the lyrics could be you know related to the arena battle if you really I, I don't think that was their written intention but you know uh it's all about uh you know sort of the angst and and we need something soon here in the soto region it's time for the city council to vote go to sonic state go to sonicsgate.com we've got an email template and we would encourage everyone to email the seattle city council with the points on the template. This is the best arena deal we've ever seen. We need to get it done soon. So here's our song. It's Something Soon by Carsey Headrest. Headrest. 